This is Macro Horizons, episode 94, Count on It, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of November 9th. And as election fever turns into recount flu, all we can say is please wear a mask. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. The week just passed in the Treasury market was truly an exciting one, both in terms of the price action as well as some of the macro developments. The primary themes that we've been focused on remain in place, the first being that some of the major event risks that are currently playing out in the macro sphere will eventually resolve, and that will allow upward pressure on rates to materialize. We saw an episode of that on Tuesday with the market pushing 10-year yields all the way up to 94 basis points and the curve likewise steepening. Now, this was obviously the market getting a bit ahead of itself in terms of pricing in a blue sweep. And at the end of the day, with all the uncertainties that continue to remain around the election outcome, it wasn't surprising to see the market pull back somewhat. That said, we are still in an environment where 10-year yields are above where they have spent the vast majority of the last several months. The technical profile suggests that there's no obvious positional skew. Although the rally that led to a 19 basis point range in 10-year yields was surely a function of the fact that a lot of people were positioned short into the election itself. The translation of all this into risk assets has been relatively benign. The takeaway from the fact that we might have a divided Congress when all is said and done has been a net positive for stocks. On one hand, it might have been negative given that the prospects for a fiscal stimulus deal 2.0 just became a lot lower. And if and when we do see a deal, the assumption is that it will take longer than anticipated and it won't be the $2 trillion it was previously assumed to be. The flip side, which is a net positive from a divided Congress, is that any efforts on the part of the Democrats to roll back some of the tax cuts and business-friendly initiatives will be a lot more difficult to push through in 2021 and beyond. So while this doesn't truly recast the macro narrative, what it does do is it provides a reasonable foundation for expectations going forward. Between now and the end of the year, we continue to see the bias toward higher rates. There was a moment in the beginning of the week where we were getting a bit nervous that our year-end target for 10-year yields at 1% wasn't high enough. 
And then on Wednesday morning, we were thinking that perhaps it was too high. But the fact of the matter is, as the market has stabilized between 80 and 85 basis points in tens, we're going to retain the call for cheaper and steeper by the close of 2020 and into the first quarter of 2021. The stronger than expected private non-farm payrolls print really reinforced this idea that the real economy is performing better than was expected, certainly during the summer months when the projections were much more dire than we've actually seen come to fruition. So if the economy is recovering more quickly than previously expected, but we've retained this range for rates, this implies that there'll be an inflection point followed by a repricing. Our take remains that that will be centered around the election and presupposes that there will be some version of a known outcome in the coming week or so. So, guys, uh, there was an election this week. I'm not sure if you heard. There was an election, but that doesn't mean that there was an outcome to the election. Now, we've for a very long time been on about how this was the primary risk. We would find ourselves in a situation where the presidential election is contested in one way, shape, or form. We actually ended up the process to calling it lasted longer than I think most people in the market were anticipating. What I found particularly informative about the price action this week was the market's willingness to price in a blue sweep immediately before the election. And then when it became clear that that was a much more difficult path to achieve, we saw all of that price action reversed and then some. A 19 basis point range for trading in the 10-year in a given day was a remarkable development. However, 10-year yields still managed to stay, for the most part, above the upper bound that we had coming into the event. For the most part, above the upper bound that had defined the range throughout the bulk of the last several months. Specifically, that 80 basis point level is the one that I'm focused on. And as we look forward to some further clarity on the election, presumably all the legal challenges will run their course and we will have the count lead to recount to lead to recount and then eventually we'll have a clear definitive winner. For now, the assumption that the market is operating on is that there'll be a Biden White House, a Republican Senate, and a Democrat House. The Georgia election introduces a bit of a wrinkle, and that wrinkle is if the Republican senators end up in a runoff on January 5th, what we might actually see is a delayed blue sweep. Now, that's by no means our baseline call at this stage, but it's a eventuality that does warrant at least a nod. This also begs the question, so then how does the market trade in the interim? Does the market attempt to price in a blue sweep and then reverse that depending on how the politics in Georgia appear to be going? Or, and this is my base case assumption, does the market simply take the results that we have from November 3rd and move on? Now, what does moving on look like? I guess I would say that the first aspect of moving on would entail a pricing into the remarkably strong non-farm payrolls print that we had on Friday. The market came into the event with a consensus for private NFP of 685,000. 
The reality was we saw 960,000 in the month of October, but more importantly were the details of the unemployment rate. We had a decline of the unemployment rate to 6.9% from 7.9%, a one percentage point decline in the unemployment rate while the labor market participation rate gained three-tenths of a percent. That is a very strong read on the labor market environment at this moment, especially considering where we are in the economic recovery process. And the beat on NFP and the drop in the unemployment rate were certainly remarkable and emblematic of what we ultimately expect is going to characterize the remainder of 2020 and as we move into the new year. Really what's been encouraging is that hiring has been able to continue despite accelerating case counts not only in Europe but now domestically. The re-implementation of lockdowns in Europe and the associated rising probability of that domestically. And of course there's still ongoing uncertainty about what will ultimately come to pass related to a vaccine. But despite all of this, the fact that we've been able to see economic activity continue and firms continue to bring workers back online, even if those aren't necessarily the same jobs that were lost earlier in the pandemic, the end result is a bolstered recovery narrative, which is why you've seen stocks rally despite the political uncertainty and the treasury curve bear steepen after that initial bull flattening we saw late on election night. This does lead to one of the discussions that we've been having, Vin, and that is exactly how far can this trend run, given everything that we know about the path of the global pandemic, and of course, what it all means for growth and the employment landscape going forward. One of the concerns that I think most people in the market have is, what happens if we see an extension of some of the lockdowns that are currently occurring in Europe transfer across the pond to the U.S.? I think everyone's on board with the call that that will be one of the big risks over the next several months. But what we've seen from policymakers on the state and local level over the past several weeks, at least, suggests that there's really not a lot of appetite to go to the full broad-based stay-at-home order sort of world that we saw in March, April, and May. And rather, the more localized approach, coupled with improvements in testing and tracking and treatment of the virus itself, should at least minimize the chances of a complete economic halt, similar to what we saw six, seven months ago. Well, and another thing that I would add to that is, unlike in March and April, when the shutdowns really crushed real GDP, if we do see shutdowns, I think that they're going to be more focused on the frontline service sector, call it restaurants, bars, the in-person retail. And that sector, as we've seen from the third quarter GDP print, never really came back. And so closing down a restaurant that was only at 25% capacity and not even filling those seats is going to have different economic ramifications than a complete closure of the real economy. The other aspect, and we've highlighted this several times, is how quickly and comfortable firms have been able to adapt to the new work-from-home model. And that has obvious implications as we look at roughly 25% of the working population continuing to work remotely insofar as a shutdown for that group isn't going to really change much of anything. So extending that logic forward, the ramifications from another pickup in COVID-19 cases domestically that ultimately leads to greater restrictions simply won't be as relevant as it was during the beginning of the pandemic. So with that framework, 
the backup that we could see in 10-year yields, for example, certainly leaves the possibility of a test of 1% on the table, if not beyond. That is predicated, of course, on the assumption that we make it through the election uncertainty and the market has offered a clear path to pricing in the new fundamentals, as it were. And just quickly on the topic of the election as well, the fact that at this stage, it seems the most likely outcome is that Biden will win the White House does have some flow through to the calculus on lockdown likelihood. He's previously stated in the past that if scientific advisors recommended that the country go back into lockdown, that he would be comfortable pursuing that strategy. But as we've seen more and more headlines start to trickle in that suggest that we ultimately will have a Biden administration, the reaction in rates doesn't point to any great degree of concern on that point. Higher long end yields and a steeper curve are pretty much exactly the opposite of what you would anticipate if nationwide lockdown 2.0 really was expected. And Ben, it's important to keep in mind the governance of that situation, because even if Biden did try to follow scientific advice by implementing something, the fact is the majority of lockdowns are decided much more at the state level, meaning that while Biden may have some political influence in order to push something like a mask mandate, it really will still be up to the individual states. And in this latest election, we did not see a massive blue wave either in governorships or state legislatures, which would raise that probability. And aside from all the political excitement this week, we actually did have an FOMC meeting as well. And the most relevant takeaway was just how unchanged the statement was and the fact that the market pretty much ignored the FOMC's rate decision. A decision not to change rates again, to keep QE at the same pace, and the only change on the statement being the date, I think, really was the Fed's way of taking the opportunity to do nothing this meeting and set up a potential shift in December if the circumstances warrant it. And let's be realistic. This was always a placeholder meeting for the Fed. Taking place so close to the election before the results are known meant that the Fed really didn't face any urgency to react, given that equities are performing reasonably well, liquidity is abundant, and they can just play for time until six weeks from now. That said, there's been a long and consistent assumption that some form of fiscal stimulus is coming. Given the fact that we're likely going to go into a split Congress, that fiscal stimulus might be smaller than it otherwise would have been. That's less aggregate demand, and that's something that the Fed may decide to offset by providing more stimulus in December. The question then is, well, what's that more stimulus going to be? They're not going to cut rates, but instead, it probably is an adjustment to the QE program. I think the most likely adjustment is by extending the weighted average maturity, putting more pressure on long rates, call it 10s, 20s, and 30s. But there is also the possibility they upsize it or shift the composition between agency MBS and treasuries. As we get closer to the December Fed meeting, the performance of risk assets will take on particular significance in skewing the odds that the Fed will actually be prompted into action. They did leave the door open for additional moves by the end of the year, but they didn't really commit. So I think that that's reasonable context. And all else being equal, I think it's safe to say that the Fed would like to avoid any further attempts at making monetary policy even more accommodative, if not effectively forced to. And as we've seen thus far, the 
most direct mechanism is through equity volatility and financial conditions. So as long as equity volatility remains subdued, I think that takes a fair amount of pressure off of the Fed as the year comes to an end. There's also this underlying question of just how comfortable would the Fed be with seeing longer dated rates back up? Now, I've been very much on board with the idea that the Fed will be content to be sidelined as long as a backup in rates and a steeper curve doesn't trigger wobbles in the equity market or an increase in the mortgage basis that actually leads to higher net borrowing costs for individuals in the real estate market. I think that that's one of the key transfers of lower rates to the end user that the Fed has been focused on and frankly will continue to be focused on as the year comes to an end. And finally, the last of this week's event, which was the Treasury refunding statement. Now, going into the announcement, there was a little bit of a split consensus on whether or not the Treasury Department would ultimately decide to increase coupon auction sizes. And the fact that they were comfortable doing just that really backs up the notion that they're not yet concerned the record amount of issuance we're seeing is at risk of triggering any blow-off price response in the treasury market. The willingness to increase coupon auction sizes does on the margin reduce the need for more bills going forward. And the fact that they confirmed that tips auction sizes will be being increased is also something to be mindful of as expectations solidify about issuance in 2021. One interesting question we got from a client is, given an expected shift in the administration next year, will this change Treasury's issuance strategy? For quite some time, Treasury's been terming out the debt by increasing 10 and 30-year issuance, introducing a 20-year bond. Should we expect a Biden administration with whoever that Treasury secretary may be to follow suit? And in addition to a lot of the fundamental reasons why they should do this, low term premium and expectation of QE going forward, there are also two nuanced reasons why I would expect that to be the case. First, it's important to keep in mind that even if the political appointees rotate over in a new administration, a lot of the underlying career staff at Treasury, including the entire group that guides issuance, will be staying on. They're all career. And so in that sense, that staff really won't change at all. The second fact is TBAC, the very important advisory committee that helps guide Treasury when it comes to issuance, is highly supportive of the current issuance strategy meaning that both of those factors, in addition to QE, in addition to low-term premium, are all pointing towards a continuation of the current strategy and a continued extension of the weighted average maturity of outstanding debt. So John, so the takeaway from what you just said is no change in the push toward increasing the average maturity of treasury issuance and the incoming administration and any changes at the treasury department would effectively lead to the existing staff just mailing it in. Does that count? Or recount. Or count again. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will remain focused on digesting the outcome of the election and the results, at least insofar as they are known. Now, this is obviously the biggest question. Will we be comfortable with the results that are available? And if not, how is the market going to respond to that? An extended period of uncertainty 
related to the election outcome was always kind of priced in. What the market is in the process of discovering is exactly how long of a period of uncertainty was assumed by market pricing. In terms of economic data, the non-farm payrolls print has really set the tone and frankly reinforced this idea that there is a bullish underpinning for the real economy that has been overshadowed by the uncertainties associated with the election. And obviously, we remain in the middle of a global pandemic, and there are implications from the increase in the case count of COVID-19. Very much on our radar at this point is whether or not the increase in COVID-19 cases translates through to widespread lockdowns in the U.S., or if it's more targeted strategic lockdowns to help flatten the curve and contain any increase in the virus domestically. Our baseline assumption remains the latter, not the former, and that should offset some of the potential economic damage created by a fresh wave of lockdowns. The market's focus on a vaccine and any progress toward one has also been overshadowed by the election process. And we expect that once again, as the market starts to look forward to 2021 and beyond, that the importance of a vaccine that can be distributed and embraced by the populace will once again become topical. We do have a fair amount of treasury issuance in the week ahead. We have threes, tens and thirties. Now recall that the last few reopening auctions have been linked to bearish periods for treasuries. The curve has steepened as the market has attempted to accommodate the incoming supply. The auction sizes grew in November, which was somewhat of an open question, although given the amount of deficit funding that the Treasury Department will continue to need to achieve, it really wasn't truly that surprising. So all else being equal, with some degree of clarity from the election process, the beginning of the week should see a bias toward higher rates, if anything. Now, that will occur, of course, within the confines of the range that we've seen recently established. And we actually don't expect that the big breakout into the end of the year will occur in earnest starting next week. Rather, taking down the supply, getting a clearer sense of the election, and having a look at the CPI figures from October will set the stage for investors to recalibrate expectations into the end of 2020 and for 2021. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. With Wednesday's upcoming market holiday, we're reminded that two short weeks are better than one. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. 
This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.